Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the podcast from the New Statesman that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're bringing you a special episode devoted to those vitally important Christmas movies, Home Alones 1 and 2. Or should it, should it be Homes Alone? I, I wasn't <laughs> sure. We're joined by our friends Stephanie Boland, Simran Hans, John Elledge and India Bork to discuss everything from masculinity to violence to consumerism in the adventures of Kevin McAllister. <laughs> Now we're joined by our colleague Steph to talk about childhood and adulthood in the Home Alone movies, which is obviously a huge part of these movies. And Steph, you have quite a detailed theory about childhood. I do. It's detailed and it's also quite pretentious, unfortunately. (laughs) I'm a PhD student, so I was watching Home Alone the other week at home. And I realised that there's something very interesting about this film, which is that even though the style of the film is not very childlike, everything in the film is told from the perspective of a child. And that's not only because you're following Kevin's journey. There are loads of childlike touches in how the narrative works. So one thing that really stood out for me was when he's finally caught by the two burglars, the punishment they say they're going to inflict is breaking each of his fingers one by one, (laughs) which is a very kind of fairy tale way of enacting a punishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are very much like bogeymen in the fairy tale sense, right? As opposed to like actual criminals would behave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I also think about that part where he goes into the basement and he sees the furnace and it's this like horrible monster. Yes. It, it becomes anthropomorphized and it's talking to him. And even Kevin is aware of that being a function of a child's imagination. He says, it's just my imagination. It's just my imagination. But you still see it through that and it's still got teeth and it's still talking. And the way he responds to his neighbour, the shovel man. Yeah. Um, he very much... <laughs> shovel man. Is it, what's his name? I can't I remember. I can't yeah. remember his name. You, yeah. you know who I mean. Man, man with shovel who has heartwarming story. Uh, yeah, he very much sees him as like scary threat and then you know gradually his perspective on him shifts as he finds out more about him and they actually speak to each other Mm -hmm. but even the reconciliation of that you know Mm. the heartwarming story side of shovel man if that's what we're going to call him the way that does come together is so interesting and that it's again from that childlike perspective it's oh adults have fears too and kevin realizes it and that's how he's able to help this man Mm -hmm. it's a very intimate moment on a very grown-up topic of a man who has lost touch with his son 
Mm. You can almost see that happening, can't you, in that little exchange that they have in the church where Kevin explains how he wished for his family to go away and then they did and it was really sad. And the man's like, well, actually, I did the same thing mm-hmm. and it's really awful. And then Kevin gives that very childlike advice. He's like, can't you just fix it? Can you just make it better? Can't you just like <laughs> ring him up and say you're sorry? Yeah. And the man's like, actually, I could do that. That would be good. You know, so there, <laughs> there you see the intersection, don't you, of like the adult way of dealing with a problem, which is just to assume that it's over. I'm never going to have a relationship with my family again. And the child way of being like you could just ask them is it partially then about the value of that kind of naivety Mm. i think so the joy of the second film is really that it's the same movie just in a different place and all the plot lines are the same more pigeons yes and instead (laughs) of shovel man you have pigeon lady yeah and he explains to pigeon lady about you know she's closed herself off to other humans and lives her life with pigeons because she is afraid of having her heart broken and he tells her a story about having a pair of roller skates and this stuck with me a lot as a child when he's like oh yeah i know exactly how you feel not wanting to use your heart in case you break it because when I was 12 I got bought these roller skates for my birthday and I never used them because they were so precious to me and I only rollerbladed in the house and I never took them outside and you know what happened I grew out of them and I never got to use them and you better not grow out of your heart you've got to use it it's so cringe but there's something in his innocence that heals some of the older people around him definitely but I do definitely think that you're right Steph about that perspective thing because you even see it in the camera angles and a lot of the adults are filmed from underneath and there's that scene where Kevin's in the sledge and you see it all from his Mm. perspective when he goes sledding down the stairs in his house to all the way outside and it looks like this massive hill because the stairs are so big to him you know when he has those sort of flashbacks when he's thinking about his family in that moment where he's like oh my god I wished my family would disappear and they have and you get moments you've seen before like look what you did you little jerk except they're filmed from a different perspective and they sound way more aggressive than they actually did in the moment like they're spitting with rage and some of them are just complete lies like he sees Buzz saying I'm gonna feed you to my tarantula (laughs) which he never says and I love those bits they're just so clever the opening sequences of both films as well the like coming in through the front door into the house with like all the children going everywhere I swear it's filmed from like knee height as Mm -hmm. well (laughs) because you just get a sense of like everyone's bigger than me and everyone's really busy and I've got nothing to do Mm -hmm. and every time he sees the wet bandit with the gold tooth and he has that moment of recognition you're always way down at his knees and you just see that sparkling tooth And then all the adults become very scary as a result, right? Yeah, you completely cannot trust or rely on adults in this film. In fact, the only adults you can trust, I guess, apart from his mother, are ones who almost fail at adulthood. So there's Shovel Guy, who obviously has this issue with his family, and that's his sort of failure. And then there's, I can't remember the name of him, the polka singer who they meet at the airport. Yeah, that his mum takes a ride with, yeah. Yeah, and you kind of have him being very silly and not really getting the social convention telling her the names of all of his song titles so adults kind of have to behave in a slightly silly way to become trustworthy all the adults who are authoritative and the police who should be able to help him and the people you are taught as a child to rely on let him down Mm -hmm. Mr Duncan who owns the toy shop in the second film who does kind of help Kevin you know he gives him a present and he gives him a lesson about friendship and Mm -hmm. stuff he's doing the very childish thing of impersonating someone else in his own shop yeah because he never tells Kevin that he actually owns the shop he pretends to be like the cashier man and then it's only on the way out when Kevin sees the oil painting of him that he realizes he's just spoken to like Duncan of Duncan's toys <laughs> and of course adult baby Donald Trump gives him reliable directions so yes. that's basically the only kind of people who are trustworthy to Kevin but it's funny then that he tries to sort of mimic these behaviors that are quite strange to him when he decides that he has to like become a man 
because there are all these great scenes in both movies where he tries to just impersonate the men around him whether it's by like recording aggressive masculine voices from the tv or from his uncle when his uncle's in the shower and replaying them or whether it's literally putting on aftershave there's a lot of dress up isn't Mm. there in that way it's so interesting because i do think that gifs and clips of home alone circulate all these years later a lot of the time with the vibe of like Kevin living his best life Mm -hmm. you know so like parents are gone it me but actually what he does when his family leaves is not purely childish you know he like puts on a dressing gown and watches an old black and white movie yeah but there are shifts aren't there because isn't the first thing he does that he has all this ice cream and watches the Grinch Mm. and sledges down the stairs and jumps up and down on the bed and runs around and tries to climb up some shelves and knocks everything down and he's like buzz I'm going through all your stuff you better come out and get me and then as it goes on he's like watching the movie that he's not allowed to watch and he's going to the store and buying a toothbrush and he's like i washed all of my major crevices with soap which i'd never done before including in between my toes and my belly button and i really (laughs) enjoyed it and like doing all these like weird adult things so it's funny that it takes like that absence of adulthood for him to think do you know what i'm gonna have a play at this and i'm gonna try it out i think who among us when a teenager when your parents went away didn't think for the first 12 hours like this is amazing i can go in all the rooms i'm not (laughs) so oh right there is a reason why my parents make me eat three meals a day and go to bed at 10 p.m it's because i feel less shit when i do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah how old exactly is he because i find his age really ambiguous maybe for that reason i think it's fungible i think he's eight in the first film i'm pretty sure he looks so little he looks smaller than eight eight, doesn't he yeah and given that the second film is supposedly exactly one year later he's nine but you're right, he's older and younger at different points as it suits the plot, I think. But a lot of the humour comes out of those moments where he is a tiny man. Like when he's carrying all his shopping home from the shops and the bag breaks. That's just so adorable because like here's this little man in a big coat with all his shopping. And when he says to the to the woman in the shop, you know, like, oh, are these microwave dinners any good? And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> is this toothbrush approved by the National Dentist Association? And they're like, who are you? <laughs> you strange little man. And of course, the classic moment when he puts aftershave on and, yeah, you know, screams, screams loud enough for the whole neighborhood. But it is interesting how, and maybe that comes back to the idea of it, you know, you learn something from adopting the childlike perspective and that children are fantastic as outsiders and translators of adult culture because it does reveal isn't it ludicrous that you do put something that stings on your face every day and what does it mean to ask if your toothbrush is FDA approved Mm -hmm. and it it kind of draws attention to the absurdities of being a grown-up yeah definitely So the next thing we're going to talk about is violence. And there's a lot of it in the Home Alone movies. And we're joined by Simran Hands, who's at heavier underscore things on Twitter. If you want to check her out, she does a lot of great film writing, including some stuff for us at the New Statesman. And we're very excited to have her here. Simran, you said that when you were watching these movies you came up with a kind of violence related drinking game that wouldn't be fair to the creator of the original (laughs) game if i took the credit yeah when i was at uni we used to play this game every christmas when we'd watch home alone we'd play it with one and two but uh, it was particularly messy in two 
And basically the idea is that you have your drink and you watch it and every time the two burglars would have conceivably been killed by whatever <laughs> Macaulay Culkin did to them, you had to take a drink and it escalates quite quickly. Yeah, um, I'm sure. Yeah, so I was watching it again the other night and they wouldn't have survived five minutes with this little kid. So do we feel like the violence goes up in the second movie? Does it get more violent? I definitely think it does. And I rewatched both this week in preparation for doing this and I feel like in the second one I was actually by about halfway through the kind of big set piece where they're trying to invade the house and he's doing his stuff to them (laughs) I feel like I stopped laughing and I started being like this is going on for too long now somehow in the first one the violence I don't know it just seems more in service of the storyline and then in the second one I guess maybe because you kind of know what's going to happen it's pretty much a remake yeah isn't it rather than a sequel I don't know I just thought like there's been too many elements of this now I know this is a very one-sided fight and <laughs> now I'm just gratuitously watching people really really hurt themselves it's quite wearying isn't it it is yeah. watching them being hit over the head with bricks again and again and again that's how it starts isn't it in the second movie that they sort of try and strike a deal with him where he throws their camera down because he's got some incriminating photos of them robbing the toy store or whatever instead he throws a brick down and and another brick and another brick that's not exactly where the violence starts because remember they see him earlier i think even in the toy shop and he has this string of pearls necklace (laughs) yes yeah yeah, um, scatters over the icy streets of new york and then they go flying and even like outside the toy store he throws the brick in and they've got this, it's kind of like a, a seesaw. Yeah, oh yeah. And then, um, yeah, one of them jumps on it, and then the other one jumps on it. And they go through, like, the roof of a car. Mm, I think that's, like, yeah. quite early on. So by the time you get to the bricks, they've already been through the wars. You've already had a few drinks by yeah. that point. And the punchline of the bricks bit is that no matter how many times he throws it, one of the guys always manages to get out of the way, and it always yeah. hits the other guy exactly. It always hits Harry or whatever. Exactly in the right place on his forehead. And then you get into the whole, like, home invasion sequence with the sticky stuff on the floor and and all kinds of stuff inside the house. I remember the paint in the mouth really vividly, which obviously isn't something that would like hurt you, but it just is so disgusting. And it reminds me, in fact, I think John Hughes is involved in these films. Did you see the 101 Dalmatian live action movies? Yes, yeah, yeah. When Cruella de Vil ends up in a big thing full of manure and it's all in her mouth and in her eyes and she's wiping it everywhere. That like gunging that is something that you so associate with children's movies very specifically, but it is so vividly gross. I remember my sister could not watch those 101 Dalmatian films because she was so creeped out by them so there is a real element of like humiliation as well as just pure violence yeah and i suppose in the second one because it's a lot more knowing it does presume that you've seen the first one i feel like at certain points kevin stops and says like have you had enough do you want any more pain which (laughs) is a really absurd line for him to have and also it really underlines the fact that this is no longer about him trying to scare them off the house and like keep himself and his parents property safe he's actively enjoying hurting them now he's playing god i guess i think it's about his sort of own sense of justice he kind of wants to take justice into his own hands and i think that's it's just interesting how he's so violent and so cruel there's like a cruelty to it that Mm. i find really funny um but maybe i just have a cruel sense of humor (laughs) now i too find it really hilarious but you don't find it funny anymore caroline i think i found the beginning of the sequence funny and then as it went on and on and on and then the bit where they were trying to climb down the rope and then he lights it in a different context this is like a really dark torture movie it is like the seventh circle of hell or whatever Mm. isn't 
doesn't it? It does feel very, yeah, retribution-y and punishment-y. Yeah, so about halfway through, I stopped laughing and I started just thinking, like, this is unpleasant now. And it maybe reveals something about this little kid character who I like that I don't really want to know. Yeah, I think if you want to follow that thought through and maybe it's ridiculous to do this and we should just give the films the benefit of the doubt because they are so funny. We were talking before with Stephanie about the masculinity element of this film and how he like basically comes of age by defending the house Mm. and inflicting violence on these intruders. And there's something a bit like creepy about that, right? The idea that his like path to manhood is about becoming this like violent vengeancey guy. And I think a lot of the punchlines in those violent scenes are when he manages to like hit them in the balls with a bowling ball or a tin of paint or something and really shames them for like having a lack of masculinity. Well, you have to remember that Macaulay Culkin, who, by the way, is only my second favorite Culkin, when he was a teenager, was in a Sonic Youth video that was directed by Harmony Corinne. And then he was in the Pizza Underground and he'd distanced himself from this sort of wholesome Kevin McAllister character in his later career. Which is so sad because I feel like Kevin McAllister better or worse is really my dream man (laughs) (laughs) what even with all the tendency to violence yeah i think so i think like you know you have to take that because he will also get you like um a champagne flute of diet coke and a big pizza in in the back of his limo so yeah true (laughs) dream man do we think that a film like this could exist today with these sort of long 20 minutes plus scenes of pure violence (laughs) i mean it would it wouldn't not in the same way but it would probably involve like computer hacking wouldn't it like (laughs) he'd ruin their lives by giving their laptops a virus he'd share their nudes yeah Yeah, exactly that's That's the kind of thing kevin would would do right (laughs) or that you know in 2016 his parents house would all be like completely wired to an ipad that controlled all the lights and everything and he'd like hide in a cupboard and just freak them out by making all the windows open and shut or something. I guess the thing that I keep coming back to is that even though it is so kind of violent, that's where all the physical comedy is. And I don't normally find that kind of, yeah, physical goofiness that funny. But every time I watch this movie, even now, even though I've seen it so many times, it just cracks me up. Just watching them kind of, I don't know, get into these scrapes and slide around and goo. And there's something very funny about it to me still. It does come from a long like filmic tradition of slapstick violence, right? I guess, yeah, if you find it funny when Laurel and Hardy drop the piano, you're going to find home alone funny right and it was big in that period because i just think of loads of films i watched as a kid a bit like that like mousetrap did you see that and i was gonna say actually mousetrap is one i haven't rewatched, and i am interested now to do so to see if i have the same and reaction i feel like Stuart little has an element of that mm, definitely yeah but i feel like now those films are things like maybe like the hangover movies and like the what's that house party movie called and office christmas party that's coming out this year where they have those like really big oh I've accidentally thrown something really heavy in a woman's face kind of slapstick humor which sometimes feels more jarring I don't know whether that's just like the logical conclusion of slapstick violence is it obviously always becomes more dramatic each time but maybe it's the involvement of a child that makes us feel this is different yeah the child's doing it then they can't possibly understand the full consequences of what they're (laughs) doing and therefore it's fine I would love to see Home Alone 5 with a little girl yes I think that would be amazing. Would she be like a computer hacking genius or would she just be like going for it with some bricks? I think she'd be a polymath. She'd be both. (laughs) (laughs) Get you a girl that can do both. Yeah. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm probably going to spend it on stuff that will rot my teeth in my mind. So now we're joined by India Bork, uh, who's a writer here with us at The New Statesman. India, it's lovely to have you here. It's lovely to be here. In this next section, we're going to talk about capitalism in these films. So India, you rewatched the first Home Alone recently and you were struck by certain elements, right? I was. I hadn't watched it since I was a kid. And watching it again, I just got incredibly distracted by all the product placements. <laughs> I mean, obviously it starts with that main, like the, the, one of the key scenes at the start of the film, which is the spilt Coke on the table. Yeah, in fact, hey, pe- I remember it's, it's Pepsi. Pepsi. Yeah, it's Pepsi. Yeah. What is he, he says, uh, that classic line where he goes, Fuller, go easy on the yeah. Pepsi. And then he like turns to the camera yeah. and he's got these glasses <laughs> and little raised eyebrows. It's so funny. But, but yeah, it, he's holding the Pepsi can, like facing the camera. The Pepsi, and you just, it's, it's the way it, the shots are framed. You just can't help but repeatedly notice the Pepsi. Do they definitely have a deal with Pepsi in that movie, do we think? Because, I mean, I don't know for sure. We're just speculating. But in the second movie, it's, it's Coke. Coke. It's definitely specifically Coke. I think they do, because I think a lot of the style in which it's filmed is so reminiscent, you know, of like music videos today when mm-hmm. they have mm. a deal where it's like, you know, those, you see, those speakers or whatever. Yeah, you see a person with headphones on and then there's like, a two second cut yeah, yeah. to so you can yeah. see the logo on the headphones yeah, it yeah. is the same style I, right yeah like the first so it's, it's in the wide shot and i was literally waiting for the close-up mm. of the of the uncle with and then i was like yes there it is there <laughs> it is that's so funny <laughs> and then so after that i became a bit obsessed with, with, with seeing what else i could spot then you've got the massive supermarket checkout scene and you think okay great he's in a supermarket but then you get to the checkout and it's almost like he swipes the camera with each product <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I, what is he buying in those scenes? Is he, is he? I remember he goes out to get a toothbrush, right? Yeah, and then when he goes to the supermarket, he gets milk and, well, as the line at the end of the movie says, he gets milk and juice and fabric softener. But he also gets like some ready meals that I think are a brand, don't they? I think so. And there's something, I didn't quite spot it was. It looks like toy soldiers at the end. Oh yeah, he does buy toy soldiers because they become important. I think that that close-up might be more to do with the fact that they become important in the violent scenes at the end. I think it's also meant to be a bit of a contrast with, oh, here's something a typical child would nag their mum to buy. And it, in contrast to all the fabric softener that the checkout assistant is quite surprised that he's bought. And then at the end, the big... Yeah. Shot his mum so pleased or the family so shocked that he's just actually survived 
the and week that he went shopping and done a very adult thing i suppose by buying not what he wants but what he needs so is that another way that kevin comes of age in this movie which is something we keep returning to in this podcast is by buying things or is that i wonder if that's an adult interpretation of coming of age are kids just like i need certain things to function and and it's not an end goal it's just a means to so it was end. no big deal to kevin when he's doing it but want, then at the end of the exactly. movie the parents see it as this massive mm. deal i think that might be quite right and i i said before but i do always think about that that image of kevin with all the shopping bags as being mm. really funny because mm. you just don't imagine a kid to be and he's like the, the shopping bag breaks and he sighs mm. and that's such a, an adult sort of trope but to kevin it's not i guess at the time yeah and i guess it's also the fact that his family is really surprised that he can you know efficiently shop shows they have really low expectations for (laughs) him as well (laughs) you know the fact that they just don't think he'd be able to handle that but the the thing that he really is worried about at the beginning of the movie is whether he can pack his own suitcase right yeah and i guess that's quite a similar thing in that Mm. it's gathering the things that Mm. you need to survive and Mm. he doesn't feel that he's able to and he says he's too young to do it Mm. but as the course of the movie goes on he's actually fine to not only use the things in the house and get them together and know what he needs to use he's able to go out of the house and Mm. find them and you know buy them with what i don't even know where he gets the money from so they i was leave it just behind gonna say that i think i was so distracted by trying to spot spot products that i failed to notice where he gets the money from and oh i know it's from the tin in buzz's room when he uh, climbs yeah. up the shelves he opens oh, yeah. like he gets down buzz's special tin of things and in it is like and he comments is like ah buzz's life savings yeah and then that's what quite he's right that's what he spends on milk and toy, toy soldiers and other stuff and by the time we get to the second movie of course we're upgraded from cash mm. and kevin has his dad's credit card he ends up with his dad's wallet when they're running for the flight in the airport kevin's bugging his dad being like i need batteries i need to put batteries in my sound recorder thing mm-hmm. and so his dad just gives him his whole like bag and like the batteries are in there just take them and so then when they get separated in the terminal he's still got his dad's bag Mm -hmm. so although it's a happy coincidence right that his dad's (laughs) passport is not in the bag so he can safely go on his flight to florida but kevin's got the bag with the cash the credit card and like his dad's address book so he can find his uncle's address in new york and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff and i think that role of capitalism specifically in christmas becomes much bigger in the second movie because most of the action is based around duncan's toy shop right Mm. or duncan's toy world or whatever it's called and that's the site of christmas to kevin that and is it the rockefeller plaza's christmas tree which again it feels like a big like statement of like business the first thing he does when he gets to new york is is check into this this big hotel Mm. right under his dad's credit card it's a big point of contention that he spends 967 dollars on room service (laughs) which you're a bit like come on this your dad is such a cheapskate because he's got like an absolute palace and (laughs) takes his entire family of about 30 people away on a ridiculous holiday every christmas so he's obviously got the income but you mentioned before that these are kind of like all american films and Mm -hmm. i think the conspicuous consumption in them is a big part of that Mm -hmm. so i'm just thinking of in the first film when you know the thing that the burglars have been doing where they've been like staking out the street and they now know the order in which the automatically timed lights come on Mm -hmm. i always think of that as being so emblematic of the film's relationship with money and property and stuff because they're just sitting there and then it's like ding 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 Mm. giant mansions and then in the second film there's lots of like panning up gigantic skyscrapers yeah there's that bit where kevin is on the top of the world trade center like looking at the whole of manhattan and kind of drinking it all in and this the sort of scary person as it were in this in the second film is this homeless woman who basically has nothing and she's fine with it. Yeah. yeah, and that's something that is difficult for Kevin to get his head around. And then the way that they sort of show their love for each other is with this gift of the the turtle doves at the end, 
which are uh, something that he's got from the toy store so it is about like gift giving as being Mm. the ultimate way to express emotion and obviously the great sin of that movie is the idea of robbing the toy store not paying for the goods Mm. that's the ultimate evil that the the wet bandits could commit so the the morality of spending money is very much tied mm-hmm. tied up in this film right? i think it's also a question it also poses the question of how far are things substitutes for people mm. and is kevin really alone when he's surrounded by all these things if he protects the property of the house things in the house and even when he's in the supermarket with all the kind of products you've got these links to a whole capitalist nexus of trade and objects mm. you feel like he's still connected to the american dream to american economy and its whole web he's not really alone at all mm-hmm. the homeless person is much more alone definitely and i think it's a big thing for kevin as well not having to share mm. like that's part of the joy of being home alone especially in that first movie i think in the second movie as well because the idea is that he's got this holiday to himself and he gets to enjoy the holiday to himself but in that first movie like the cheese pizza is obviously a huge thing of contention when the whole family come round and they all order pizza and kevin only likes plain cheese and they've eaten the, his plain cheese and when he's alone he orders his own cheese pizza and eats it completely by himself and that's the, the great joy of consuming alone mm. is that you don't have to share it with anyone else mm. The bit that I always think about in relation to this is right at the end of the second film. You know, when in Thanks for Saving the Toy Store, uh, Mr. Duncan of Duncan's Toys has sent, you know, this incredible array of presents. They come, you know, they're staying Mm. in the Plaza Hotel, all of them after they've been reunited and they come down on Christmas morning and the whole living room is just covered in presents. And Buzz makes this little heartwarming speech where he's like, Kevin, if you hadn't got lost again, we wouldn't have got all this free stuff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah there's an irony to it but it's also that is the heartwarming moment of that well, film yeah. but that's the, the I aside like from the tree the comedy of it comes from the fact that buzz says it in a really crass way yeah. not the fact he just expresses the like underlying message of the film in a really blunt way Too it's bluntly. not it's not that the message mm. is contradicted yeah yeah same as in the first episode when the, the end is all about the shopping and mm. you're a man now because you went shopping. It's, <laughs> it's a slightly sad message. In <laughs> way. So um, we've just ruined Home Alone for you. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy that. Sorry, everyone. It's actually a capitalist fable about consumption. Oh, no. My family's in Florida and I'm in New York. My family's... In Florida, I'm in New York. Now we're joined by John Elledge of City Metric fame, a regular contributor to all sorts of New Statesman podcasts. Lovely to have you, John. Hello, how are we doing? Very good. So we thought we'd talk about place in the Home Alone movies. Obviously, the main difference between the two films is their setting. It's basically the same movie, but in two different settings. Yeah. (laughs) So the first film, does it have a very specific setting? I assume it's a Chicago suburb. I think it is Chicago. It's a posh bit of Chicago somewhere, yeah. Yeah, that sort of almost creepy suburbia vibe that the first film has. Yeah, but that's what enables the burglars to stake it out like they do, right? Is because everyone on the street lives in a giant mansion and is going away for Christmas. Mm -hmm. It seems like a very familial setting, right? Where there's all these different all-American families. And then at Christmas time, when it's hollowed out of that vibe, because all all the friendly local neighbours seem to be away with their kids, it becomes quite creepy because it's literally just him and the shovel guy and the wet (laughs) bandits, right? I mean, I, I remember when you first asked me to do this, you kind of contrasted that with... 
um, New York, which I think you described as a glittering toy box or yeah, something. Yeah, I think New York becomes just a big kid's playground, basically. But I, I mean, I, I, I helpfully, for podcast purposes, I sort of disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I actually think both places contain that kind of tension between, on the one hand, you've got sort of, you know, light and joy and happiness, and it, it's just, it, it, it's from different sources. In New York, it's the glitz and the glamour, whereas in suburbia, it's, you know, it's, it's family life. It's kind of home comforts. Mm-hmm. But in both of those environments, he's then thrust into a version of the same place that doesn't have those things. So in suburbia, it is, as you say, you know, he's left on his own with just like the, 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 the creepy nice old man down the road. Who, mm-hmm. uh, whereas in New York, he kind of goes up to wherever it is, like Harlem or something, I assume. Where or, that house is. Yeah, yeah, or maybe Brooklyn Heights or something, you know, something a bit out of the center of Manhattan where it's all sort of building work and there's nobody around. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, I mean, it's... I think it's more about the different aspects of how one place can appear with it, depending on your, your sort of context within it socially, I think. I think that's definitely true. And the song, of course, from the first movie, Candles in the Window, there are like two sides to that coin, because obviously when you think of candles in the window and you think of families with all their like beautiful Christmas decorations, that being like a real like comforting place. And then, as Caroline mentioned earlier, when all the families depart, they set up automated lights for when they're leaving. So those kinds of electric candles in the window become quite a, a symptom of the creepy emptiness of the place. It's also, I think, the idea of, you know, the, the sort of lights in the window has a different meaning if you're the person outside the window looking in. Mm-hmm. Like, So I, I think that's kind of a very big theme of both movies, actually. It's just like the you've got the the guy who's kind of lost track of touch with his family. You've got the homeless woman in the second movie. It's people who are kind of a bit outside at Christmas who are kind of, you know, watching all this sort of happy, familiar, mm. joy stuff happening, but they're excluded from it. And that's kind of where Kevin finds himself because he thinks he's really excited about being alone at Christmas or, you know, losing his family or whatever. And then he suddenly realizes, actually, this isn't that great. The second movie really dramatizes it as part of Kevin's experience where, like, firstly, he's completely living the high life on his credit card in a posh hotel and he gets chased out. He's effectively homeless all of a sudden. Mm. He's just mm. wandering the streets, terrified. That's so true. So he kind of switches from one side of that to the other. Yeah, that's so true. And there's that moment, isn't there, where so after he leaves the hotel, he goes to his uncle Rob's house thinking, well, you know, at least I can visit some of my family and I'll be safe with them. Mm. Uh, and then there's that moment where he like climbs up through the um, builder's garbage chute and comes out into this like completely derelict house that's got holes in the floorboards and everything's just falling to bits. You're like, oh, right, actually, you're no better off inside here than you were outside. Mm -hmm. The sudden experience of being homeless Mm. happening to a very young kid. And as a result, he encourages those two figures to try and like reconnect with their families, right, and their lost loves or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I'm finding Home Alone to be a much deeper movie than I realised about 90 (laughs) seconds ago. This is fun. Yeah, well, I... The the reason I think I, I think of New York as a glittering toy box or whatever is just because those opening scenes, I guess it's very similar to when he's in the house on his own and he finds so much fun in it if for the first like 20 minutes or so. But the, the toy store just seems like this absolute brilliant world. The the Christmas tree we've talked about in, in the Rockefeller Plaza, all of these things also full of fun. But I guess it's the same eventual realisation that there's not much fun to be had if there's no one to share it with. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ways in which the the two films are slightly different is in the first film, he actually sort of thinks he's magicked his family out of existence somehow. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the second film is 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 a more grown up or at least adolescent fantasy rather than a childish one, where it's like I'm I'm in this cool city on my own and I don't have to answer to anyone. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's the it's the difference between I'm you know I'm going to run away from home and you'll miss me, goddammit, it, and actually sort of I'm going to I'm just going to go on a holiday. I'm going to go and be independent. Because he does actually say that at one point, doesn't he? When he realizes he's in New York and realizes his family is not in New York, he's like, oh, holiday alone in mm. New York. He uses the phrase holiday rather than yeah, as you say in the first one, when he just thinks he's going to be alone forever because he's done <laughs> some evil dark magic. One place that I always think gets a really rough ride in both these movies is Florida. Mm Because in the first movie, the little kid who lives next door is like, oh, we're going to Florida for Christmas. Like, it's so shit. And then obviously the premise of the second movie is that they're all going to Florida to spend Christmas together. And Kevin is just outraged. Like, Christmas cannot exist in Florida to Kevin, right? I mean, this is is actually something that Stephanie and I talked about on the Steamatric podcast, Skylines, which you really should check out, by the way. Just just (laughs) very, very casually throwing... Plug, plug, Yeah, you're going to cut that bit on you. Um, But no, we we did talk about this. The idea of, like, Christmas in a hot climate feels wrong to me. Mm -hmm. Not just because it's not what I'm used to, but... All the iconography doesn't change. So we had a piece on City Metric a couple of years ago about the Christmas fair in Buenos Aires, Mm -hmm. where it's the height of summer. But they still have, you know, like they still pretend there's snow on the trees. Yeah, as someone whose parents are from the Southern Hemisphere, I've experienced this a lot. I've spent Christmas in South Africa many times. All the Christmas cards still have snow and robins on it. They make Father Christmases wear like velvet suits, even though it's a thousand degrees out and we had an amazing christmas day where my uncle decided to try and barbecue an entire turkey (laughs) that's like the gilmore girls episode with thanksgiving yeah (laughs) it's just like that i'm just gonna say it took four hours and it was disgusting oh my god so is it any less christmasy for you if you're in when you're in south africa oh yeah i don't think of it as christmas at all oh that's funny we always have english christmas the weekend before we go also i wanted to ask john about new york in home alone too because new york is such a movie city right it's so many movies happen there that if you actually then eventually visit you feel this odd odd sense of like i've been here before somehow even though you never Mm -hmm. actually have but re-watching home alone 2 for this i was really struck by how movie new york has aged you know like they make a big play of the twin towers in this film like there's lots of shots of them and kevin like goes up to the top of one of them and looks out on manhattan and stuff so there's like a big hole in that now but the twin towers were for the late 20th century a key part of the new york iconography i think it was almost like you know this is modern new york this mm. is how you kind of showed you're in contemporary new york as opposed to you know gilded age new york or whatever would be those skyscrapers because they were relatively new i think they appeared in like the late 60s early 70s okay so so i yeah but they appear in all sorts of of movies set in new york one of the kind of iconic views is the one from the harbor to the south like coming Mm. from the statue of liberty or staten island or whatever and it's exactly that tip of manhattan you're looking at where the twin towers are right at the southern end there is a weird tension where because our idea of new york is the sort of movie new york as much as the real new york it almost makes it oddly timeless Because it's not, you're not thinking of a specific place, you're thinking of this kind of composite of all the sort of New York TV and movies you've seen. And that means when you do get something that's, that's meant to be generic, but is actually very clearly placing it in a particular time, I think that does kind of pull you out the fiction a little bit. Yeah, because uh, other than that, he does hit all of the, as you say, the like generic New York-y places, like the final showdown happens under the bridge in Central Park. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he goes... He goes down Fifth Avenue, doesn't he? You see Macy's and stuff like that, you know. Rockefeller Center. Exactly. Is this a rare movie, being a John Hughes movie set in New York? It's 
the so the main character in it apart from Kevin. Mm. And I think it's interesting, al- although we have so many explorations of New York, how many do we have from a child's perspective like that? And I think that that's sort of what makes New York seem different to me in this movie and why it seems so fun and exciting because it is literally just this kid like w- seeing what he can get with his with daddy's credit card. And that to me is really fun. I, I mean, it, it, it is a very difficult plot to replicate because like actually as a child, you don't get to explore places on your own. You are kind of forced into whichever sort of element of 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 a place and whichever experience that your parents or or guardians want you to have you don't get to just think right today i'm going to go to the park or whatever it's mm-hmm. so it's, it's very difficult to kind of present it from a child's point of view in that way with that level of control i think and i think that quite nicely takes us back to where we started in this podcast so thank you very much john so john now we're asking everyone what is your favourite thing that Kevin does while home alone? And what is your favourite thing to do while home alone? I'm kind of going to give the same answer here because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting on a bit. I'm in my mid-30s. I've been married forever. <laughs> so, so the thing I really like when I have the house to myself is having complete control of the remote. And I can watch what I like and I can eat what I like. Like both I'm home just... alone movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's Christmas, actually. I'd probably do Scrooge, just my favourite Christmas movie. But, mm. uh, but, but yeah, it's just... It's not having to sort of deal with the demands of another person for a bit, and just you can kind of completely do what you want. So, and the, I, those are not particularly sort of exciting ambitions I have. It is probably I will watch some Doctor Who and order a pizza. It's in like you know proper sort of comic book guy style. Um, but you, but yeah, that's that's the bit of the, the Kevin McAllister experience. I look jealously on with that. <laughs> Living the dream. <laughs> So, Stephanie, what is your favourite thing that Kevin gets up to while he's home alone? Well, my favourite moment in Home Alone is the highly symbolic moment where he burns one of the burglar's hands with the doorknob and it brands a letter into his hand. And I just love that. I love that the literalism of this film is the home literally injures the person trying to intrude on it. That is great. Yeah. And Stephanie, what would you get up to now if you were left home alone? When I am left home alone as a boring grown-up and sadly not as an eight or nine-year-old child, I mostly watch television that my boyfriend wouldn't be interested in and have very long cot baths. (laughs) I mean, that sounds ideal. That sounds excellent, yeah. So, India, what is your favourite thing that Kevin gets up to while he's home alone? My favourite thing Kevin gets up to is something that I'm not sure we ever actually see him doing, which is cleaning. Cleaning? <laughs> At the end of so the whole first film, everyone's running around the house and completely destroying it. And suddenly, the last minutes, we see a beautifully laid table, beautifully uh, tidy living room with That's the stockings true. hung up by the tree. And he's clearly very house proud and waiting for his mum to come home to kind of show off how perfectly he's taken care of this house. It's cleaner, I think, than when they left. No sign of the destruction left by the wet bandits. Exactly. But then the final line of the movie is, Kevin, what did you do to my room? From Buzz screaming down the stairs. Exactly. So he obviously the one intentionally <laughs> left Buzz's room in disarray just for revenge. Well, I guess even if he <laughs> cleaned it he couldn't fix the shelves that he ruined by climbing on so yeah (laughs) and India what is your own personal favorite thing to do when you're home alone cleaning (laughs) (laughs) same again it's so satisfying (laughs) when it's done (laughs) 
So, Simran, what is your favourite thing that Kevin gets up to while he's home alone? My favourite thing that Kevin gets up to while he's home alone is when he's in the Plaza Hotel by himself and he plays the movie when the the Tim Curry character comes in. <laughs> so good. And uh, just stresses him stresses him out so much I just think that's hilarious but also I like the bit when he orders the pizza to himself in the back of the limousine yeah. that's something that I would do that is a classic a classic moment and Simran what is your favourite thing to do when you're home alone I actually hate being home alone me too um, I'm, <laughs> oh, I love it I'm way too much of an extrovert and I get all like weird and antsy when I have to be by myself for too long I start to think that the wet bandits are in the house when I'm home <laughs> alone for too long right but I don't know I, I guess I like to cook that's one thing that I really like to do by myself because then I'm not competing with my flatmates for space in the kitchen um, but then I, I like it when they come home as well and eat the food with you exactly ideal And Anna, what's your favourite thing that Kevin does when he's home alone? So although this isn't the most exciting part of the movie, I just love the bit where he is narrating the fact that he's washed his whole body in front of the mirror and he's like, I washed all my major crevices. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know I mentioned that earlier in the show, but to me, it's just so so sweet. And when he's like put the like grown up products in his hair and everything. So yeah, although it's not as fun as like sledging down the stairs or whatever, I just think that moment is so sweet. And what's your favourite thing to do when you're home alone? I guess my favourite thing to do when I'm home alone is like light a scented candle, get the lighting nice and like do a bit of collaging at my desk. I have a, maybe like in a sort of Paris crafting to de-stress way. I do like to do the occasional collage. So <laughs> that would be that. Very nice. What about you? What's your favourite thing that Kevin gets up to while home alone? I think, isn't it the first night that he's alone in the first movie? He makes himself like an impossible tower of confectionery in a bowl that's like marshmallows and ice cream and caramel and everything he can find that he's not normally allowed to eat all mixed together in one great big schmush iconic and it's really really delicious clearly that's definitely my favorite thing a great one and what's your favorite thing to get up to while home alone i'm i assume it's not eating a load of dairy-based products no because (laughs) i'm lactose intolerant listeners so i would not do that no it this is very inflected by the fact that i still live in a shared house even though i'm nearly 30 and it's leaving my stuff everywhere oh in the very rare occasion I get like a stretch of a few days where all of my housemates are away because you know when you live with other people you always have to be really considerate and think well someone else might need to use this table after I'm done so I must pack everything away again Mm -hmm. just being like no I shall leave all my work out I shall leave my laundry hanging everywhere somehow feels like the greatest luxury living the dream yep Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? You can find us wherever you get your podcasts every Tuesday, including in iTunes, where you could leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people find the show. On our website, seriouslypod.com, you'll find all our back episodes. If you enjoyed this special, you can find the others we've done on Gilmore Girls, Harry Potter, Friends, and the seasonally appropriate Love Actually at our website too. We're also available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. 2017 is just around the corner, and we need your recommendations for things we should feature on the show. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com to tell us about something you think we should cover or to tell us your thoughts on what we've already discussed. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Oh, yeah. 